This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, May 4th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. May 4th, Star Wars Day, because... May the 4th be with you. Originally founded as Star Wars fans with speech impediment day. Darth Vader is a Sith Lord. Doris Vadir is the Sixth Lord. No, again, it is also a national day of prayer and a national day of reason. Yes, those two things. And the interplay of those two belief systems, or with the day of reason, fact systems, describes passage of Obamacare repeal, which happened in the House. Faith on the part of Republicans, or at least those Republicans who worry about getting reelected, that their constituents won't be hurt so much. Reason? If they're from states that opt out of covering pre-existing conditions, then sick citizens, sick with asthma, autism, or pregnancy, could find coverage unaffordable. Faith, faith that their vote today won't become immediately unpopular. Reason? The CBO hasn't scored it yet. Now, you could argue that the CBO's inaccurate, That's what the Republicans or some Republicans tried last time. It didn't work last time. Don't see why it would work this time. Faith, faith that three Senate Republicans won't defect and say, I cannot do this to my constituents. Or maybe the faith is that the Senate will actually defeat this bill. And then House members could say, yeah, we tried. Promise fulfilled. Which seems stupid. Reason. You're asking me the reason why passing a bill with the expectation that it will be eventually killed is stupid? Well, you're either much smarter than I or much stupider. Of course, you are me. No, I am your father. So I guess that all clears it up. And if it doesn't, I commend you to the spiel, the one assumption on the politics of healthcare that many people say will save Obamacare. But what if they're wrong? But first, let's get out of this studio and to a neon factory where we'll get a tour just like uh, people can get a tour on Atlas Obscura Day. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, this is Mike Pesca. You might know me from such podcasts as the one you're listening to, The Gist. And I'm here in anticipation and celebration of uh, what's called Obscura Day. I'm here with Larissa from Atlas Obscura. Larissa, I, I assume you have a surname? Yes, the last name is Hayden. So tell me, uh, give me a thumbnail sketch of what Atlas Obscura Day is, and then we're going to jump into a, uh, a radio version of said day. Obscura Day is our real-life expression of atlasobscura.com, and what we're doing is celebrating curiosity and discovery out in the world with 175 events in one single day on Saturday, May 6th, and we're doing it in 25 different countries in 36 different states, and one such example of one of the places that we're going to explore is Lightbright Studios, where we are today. Conveniently, I think the Obscura Day activity closest to my home, I city biked here, but what would the furthest from my home be? Oh, the furthest might be on the top of a mountain in Berlin where we are staging a concert. Yeah. All right. That's excellent. But where we are now is not an abandoned hilltop. It's uh, a place that is both dark and bright. I am speaking with... This is Wayne Heller from Lightbright Neon. I've been at Lightbright for pretty close to a decade now. The company was started probably about 15 years ago by Matt Dilling, who sort of as a student up in Boston became interested in neon and by rooting through dumpsters at MIT sort of acquired his first neon technology and sort of started out making art projects and helping artists with stuff, which is something that we continue to do here at Lightbright today. So the studio we're standing in has many, many examples of neon. You have rainbows, you have uh, signs from what certainly would be businesses you have tubes that are not glowing. What, what do you do here mostly in this studio? This is the glass bending room at Lightbright. And this is where all of the design and the planning that happens elsewhere in the shop sort of gets made into like the physical product, the physical object. It's where the glass goes from being this solid, straight tube to be heated up and sort of transformed into its finished design. And sometimes that's going to be text for a business. And sometimes it's going to be some crazy dimensional pieces for an art project. It really kind of changes week to week here. How long have you been doing it? About 10 years. How masterful are you, would you say? I'm not masterful at all with bending glass. My role is sort of uh, in the planning and the drawing phase. Yeah. Sergio, who is our master bender, has been at it for probably about 15 or 16 years, and he is a fantastic tube bender. He's a master he's bender. Got, he's a master bender, and he's I got love the master lots bender. and lots of experience. Does he write that on his IRS farm? Master bender? probably should. Yeah. He probably should. We just call him the, ma- the maestro. Maybe the he maestro. should put that on his, on his tax form. So tell me, I just have a basic question about neon. It is on the periodic table, right? It is a noble gas. What role does the noble gas, you pump the gas through and it makes it glow. How does the neon work? How does the neon make the colors? We start off with this straight um, bit of glass and then it gets bent into an elaborate letter form or design. After that, it gets taken over to the pump, which is over here in the corner. And we hook our tubes up to this vacuum pump system, heat the tube up to a high temperature and backfill it with the gas and then seal the tube off and then light it up with electricity. And when you hit this sealed tube with anywhere from five to 15,000 volts, high voltage electricity, it excites the neon gas that's in the tube and produces this wonderful light that is really unlike any other light out there. How long does the neon last? Typically, it could last 
forever in theory. There's a famous restaurant in downtown Los Angeles called Clifton's. And Clifton's was sort of this like Hollywood hangout in the 1920s. It had lots and lots of elaborate neon, both inside and out. And at some point in the 30s, after the Depression, I think, they sort of did a renovation and they walled up these old parts and they actually walled up old neon Uh, fast forward to like 2010 they started doing another renovation and they ripped down a wall and discovered there was still a neon sign that was lit behind the wall so So that neon tube behind the wall had been lit since like the late 1920s so when we see a sign and there's a letter missing it's it's not from leon neon's fault sometimes it's product failure but Uh sometimes somebody throws a bottle at it or sometimes the outside elements conspire against it but when you, if you're called in, okay, my no vacancy sign is now a no vacancy sign. What do you do first? Look for a crack in the glass? Look for. We tend to look for like the obvious things yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. Another big question. So, working here in Lightbright, how often do you sing the jingle from the old uh, toy from the 1970s and 80s? We never reference that for copyright reasons, and I hope Hasbro isn't listening. No. <laughs> Should I just go ahead and give you guys like a kind of run through the yeah, shop? Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, okay. So you've seen... You've Will some seen, version of this be what people on Obscura Day get? Yeah, they're actually the, the folks at Obscura Day are going to be getting a lot of talk about um, sort of the history of Neon, but also how the history of Neon overlaps with this wonderful Serbian-American inventor named Nikola Tesla. So um, sure. I don't, I don't want to give too much away, but we're going to be kind of doing some bending and doing some demonstrating on Saturday. Okay, don't give too much away, but when was Neon discovered? You know, it's kind of one of those late Victorian era things where a few people stumbled into it at once. Yeah. On a commercial level, it's been around for about 101 or 102 years. Yeah. So don't tell me anything about Tesla, but just give me one thumbnail sketch. I heard he was uh, in love with pigeons. Maybe that uh, has an effect on your tour. Maybe it doesn't. I know he lived at the Hotel Pennsylvania. I know it was played by David Bowie in a movie. Oh, yeah, uh, that's I know right. a new Tesla will run around $80,000, and they have the uh, doors that swing open. You're not talking about that. Just give me one... Uh, one nugget about how Tesla and Neon relate. You know, he had these wonderful ideas about delivering um, sort of cheap power to the masses. And at the 1893 exposition, he sort of demonstrated this with a Tesla coil in which he sort of made a bunch of neon tubes and lit them wirelessly, which was like a real amazing feat, which it's kind of a shame that he sort of ended his life in a little bit of despair because yeah. he had such amazing and incredible ideas to give away energy for free to the masses. And of course, that didn't quite align with Westinghouse and the sort of industrial barons of the day. Yeah. He wound up bro- broken and pining for his love of a pigeon, from what I understand, from how I read. I've heard the pigeon thing too. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. weird. Are there any municipalities or parts of towns that are real pains in the ass with neon? They won't let you put it up? Oh, yeah. All of New York City. Really? <laughs> yeah. So technically, every sign in New York City is supposed to have a permit. And um, it's a very rigorous process to go through and get accepted. And the city has very specific limitations to the point where like, if you, a lot of the old signs that you see in New York now are only there because they're sort of grandfathered into a really? pre-DOB law. Why it's so what's a, what can an old sign it. do that a new sign can't? Brightness? Is that the big thing? You know, size is the big thing. So if you if uh, Chesterfield, oh, you can't advertise cigarettes. But if you, Pan Am, oh, they're out of business. I'll think if Coke wanted to evoke an old neon sign, they couldn't do it. 
Well, they could on 42nd Street. On 42nd Street. Uh, in fact, that's one of the few areas in the city yeah. where you're sort of required to have large-scale signage. Oh, that's cool. It's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. But there's not a lot of – there's not like the golden age of neon is sort of passed. But like we are constantly referencing the signs that we see in old photos and old books. And I'm always talking about one of my favorite uh, earlier American designers, this guy by the name of Douglas Lay, who is sort of – Almost not single-handedly, but he was very responsible for a lot of the really elaborate, crazy neon signs that came to be in the 40s and the 50s. He's the guy that made the camel guy smoking a cigarette, and he's right. like smoking actual smoke. And Ballantine beer, which was like a clown throwing a ring around a bottle. It's crazy, animated, elaborate things. You ever spell a sign wrong? I have to redo it? It's happened. It's happened, yeah. Grammatical errors are a reality of the job. All right. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks for coming to visit. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And now the spiel. They're calling the House bill on Obamacare a number of things rewritten and rushed through, retrograde and repellent, not well-reasoned and rough on the sick, or perhaps I've made a mistake. This is, make no mistake, this is a repeal and a replace of Obamacare. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake. The president, in a Rose Garden ceremony, celebrating a massive overhaul of one-sixth of the American economy, a overhaul done in a hurry. Mr. Trump, of course, sought to reassure the American people, who maybe even would support the bill if they were just given details and specific assurances. So with that in mind, he spoke right to his voters, who might be uncertain about how the bill would affect them. I'm president. Can you believe it, right? But it wasn't all about him. I see Mark and I see Kevin. I see so many people. Jim. And I see Renee and Katie and Lauren. And there's Marissa and Robbie and Bree. Ah, romper room from my youth. Okay, if you think I was being unfair in editing parts of the president's speech where he did get specific and not just superlative... I could specifically tell you I didn't do that. He was not specific. Some of the members of the House of Representatives who joined him were a little more specific, but not many. To be fair, it is unlikely they all read H.R. 1628. It has over 250 sections, including my favorite, Section 231, repeal of the tanning tax. But the broad strokes of this legislation are understood. Less money spent by the government, but also less help for the sick. Only no one admits that. I know of no one who will acknowledge or even admit to themselves that this is the actual choice. Sometimes it's jumping on a word, right? Someone will call coverage of pre-existing conditions a luxury and that clip goes viral. Other times it's a really heartbreaking story that ends in a truth universally acknowledged. Here was Jimmy Kimmel a couple days ago telling the story of his newborn son, Billy, who had a heart defect but was saved through the miracle that is science as provided by the mundanity that is insurance. 
And I want to say one other thing. President Trump last month proposed a $6 billion cut in funding to the National Institute of Health. And thank God our congressman um, made a deal last night to not go along with that. They actually increased funding by $2 billion. And I applaud them for doing that. We could all agree that babies should be saved, but we can't agree that doing so should be the responsibility of a person other than the baby's family. We can't. If we pretend, yes, obviously, we got to spend money to save the baby and the sick old person and the person in the Iowa high-risk pool who uses a million dollars a month in treatment for a rare genetic disease, then we stop agreeing. On the podcast of Ben Shapiro, who's a conservative who I like listening to, past just guest, he told a story very much like Kimmel's. Shapiro has a daughter, and his daughter had a hole in her heart, and Ben's daughter had surgery in the same hospital as Jimmy Kimmel's son, in fact, from the same surgeon, but Ben Shapiro came to a different conclusion. The fact is that in the United States of America, if you have an emergency situation like Jimmy Kimmel had, let's just assume this happened at Cedars-Sinai, again, where my wife gave birth, let's assume that... The exact same situation happened, but there was no insurance. And the doctor spotted that there was this emergency surgery that had to happen in order to prolong the child's life. They don't ask insurance. They immediately send the kid over to Children's Hospital, and Dr. Starnes works on the kid. Well, the fact that a kid would and should get necessary emergency surgery, it's not only an argument for private health care. Emergency care, which is what the uninsured do use, is much, much more costly than everyone getting in the same insurance pool. Shapiro knows this, and I do not want to distort his argument. He spends most of the time emphasizing that Children's Hospital receives charity, and it's through charity that you can make up the gap between patients' needs and health care provisions. The fact is that my kid was not buying her own health insurance when she was a year and a half old. We had health insurance. It covered her. That doesn't mean that if there's a gap that we as a community shouldn't step in. That's what charity's for. That's why hospitals cover the gap. That's why costs are passed on very often through a backdoor method via the hospital to people who do have insurance. But it does say that it is a mistake as a society to simply say to people that there is no moral responsibility to get health insurance while you're healthy and while you don't have health problems. Because if you don't do that, if there, if you just say whenever you get sick, you can immediately take advantage of the system, people will wait to get sick to take advantage of the system and you'll end up bankrupting the system. And the solution for that is to require that everyone get insurance, just like car insurance. So what you do is you make the fine for not getting insurance cost a little less then the cost of okay insurance, then everyone will get okay insurance. And then we have a huge pool and things will still cost money, but it won't cost as much. I play the Ben Shapiro clip to point out how hard it is to get an honest argument in healthcare. Healthcare is a benefit. All benefits have costs. Even when a critic points out the distortions of those arguing, so that's what Ben was doing, saying Jimmy Kimmel doesn't get it right, but Ben didn't get it right. And the president, oh, the president says, of course, don't worry, all the benefits will be there. That's what he told John Dickerson. Now, this is important because this is said to be the truth or the lie that will doom the bill or ensure that if the bill actually becomes law, doom those who support the bill. And it is said that people will actually suffer. And once people actually suffer, people will actually notice and there will be a political price to pay. Because healthcare isn't foreign policy and it's not tax policy. We hear this over and over again. Healthcare isn't an abstraction, it's personal. Healthcare is personal in a way that, that is different from most other political issues. So personal. 
Healthcare well, is of course personal. It is. Wait, what's the word? It's going to affect every American in a personal and intimate way. And because it is personal, people will know. People will realize what's going on. People will feel it. You can't pull a song and dance or rely on alternative facts about this one issue, healthcare. My question is, what if we're wrong about that? I mean, you'd think that you couldn't hide facts about deportations, right? Uh, You can say, we'll only deport the criminals, and then you go ahead and deport people who aren't criminals, and the community rises up, and therefore, that would be personal, and people would know, and costs would be paid. But that doesn't seem to be happening. Or you would think that if someone promises the job's coming back, and then the jobs don't come back, that seems intimate, right? And there'd be a price to pay. And yet the strategy seems to be just promise that the jobs are coming back. Why are we so sure that the reality of healthcare and healthcare only can't be spun or massaged or ignored or siloed in your media silo or Breitbarted or subtweeted into a twisted opposite reality? Why is it that we think that with healthcare and only with healthcare, there will be some victims, but the presence of those victims will motivate so many people to punish representatives. There are so many issues in American life where there are victims, but the masses look at those victims and say, yeah, sucks for them. Why wouldn't healthcare or lying about preconditions be a sucks for them moment? The Democrats were so sure when Obamacare passed that people would get it and they'd like it. And that reality, the reality of healthcare, the personal intimate reality would carry the day. But that didn't happen. Why are we so sure that once pre-existing conditions aren't covered, there must be a day of reckoning? And I was thinking about that as I heard Representative Tom MacArthur today in the Rose Garden offer this anecdote. I watched my dad, who I love very much. He's in the latter stage of Alzheimer's now. But I watched him all my life working three jobs to pay off medical bills because he had no insurance when my mother died of cancer when I was four. He paid those bills off when I was in college. I remember the day he called me and told me he had finally lifted that burden. And I was proud of him. Huh? I said, this is a reason to repeal Obamacare? No, wait, that's the reason for Obamacare. But this is what it told me. It told me that anecdote's good. You got to use that anecdote. It's affecting. It's personal. It's intimate. It's all that. So you know what you do? You say the anecdote and you twist it to suit your purpose. Just like a promise of covering pre-existing conditions is a promise that works. So you make that promise. Now, we're pretty certain that when a cancer patient or a parent of an autistic kid finds themselves facing a crippling bill, the promise will be revealed as a lie and the politician who offered the lie will be punished. And unlike everything else in American life, there will be no way around that. There will be direct cause and effect assigned by those who have been victimized. No one will be able to lie or misdirect or weasel their way out of responsibility. And everyone who knows this parent or this cancer victim will rise up and say, you, you who did this to them, you will be punished. And they won't say, well, my insurance went down. And there'll be no motivated reasoning or consumption of propaganda that will work against that personal, intimate reality. Well, we'll see. Or hopefully, we won't be forced to. That's it for today's show. And I see just producer Chris Berube, and I see just producer Mary Wilson, and I see Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and I see Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, who as a young man growing up in Serbia, dreamed of twisting tubes until they glowed. 
The gist is a noble gas. You pump it through your brain and end up with a glowing sign to the world that you are a force to contend with. You invite people in or sometimes tell them no vacancy. That's how the show is supposed to work. Oomperu, depperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.